the Digiday Podcast. I'm Kaylee Barber, media editor at Digiday. I'm Tim Peterson, senior media editor at Digiday. So Tim, you had the conversation again this week and you spoke with Kelly Carter, who is an entertainment journalist at The Undefeated. And I'm curious, um, why did you want to have Kelly on this week? Yeah, so Kelly is uh, a journalist. She's a a uh, text journalist like the rest of us, but she's also a uh, host podcast. She just debuted a new podcast um, with ABC Audio called Close Up that um, is kind of timed towards, you know, Oscar season. The premiere episode came out the day after the Oscars. And so she's you know having uh, interviews with different actors, actresses, directors, and others for that, um, as well as covering news. But um, But then she's also... You know, she does stuff on TV and she has her own production company. So she just is the type of journalist who's wearing a lot of hats, which I feel like is becoming more and more the case with many journalists these days. Yeah, I was going to say, I feel like wearing many hats is a, a common theme that we're seeing from people as they branch out from being a quote unquote text journalist. Um, I'm curious, though, like how have her experiences kind of led to the different ways that she tells stories now like did she get into her personal experience um coming up in the journalism industry yeah she's got a lot of stories and and that's kind of the um thrust of the conversation is we kind of just walk through her history in journalism and how like she's gotten to where she's at now and I mean, she's got some really great stories that she runs through like how she was the first you know journalist on the ground outside the hospital um when Michael Jackson died, um, how, you know, she saw Whitney Houston, um, I think within like 12 hours of when she passed, um, not all the stories are death related. I'm just realizing that's something of a through line, but she has a lot of, you know, great stories. And then, you know, there's also stories about how she was, you know, part of print newspapers that laid off journalists because of the struggles with print and how, that um, made her more aware of the the business side of journalism. And so in addition to her getting into TV and podcasts and production as a way to kind of add tools to the tool belt from a storytelling perspective, it also helps to make her more diversified as a journalist. Yeah, I'm very interested to hear some of these very memorable stories that she has with celebrities, but then also you know, how her experiences have been um, as a story journalist herself. So I'll let you guys get into it. Cool. Thanks, Kelly. Thanks, Tim. Kelly Carter, welcome to the Digiday Podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Tim. Absolutely. So, Kelly, you wear a lot of hats. You are a journalist, a, you know, not print reporter, a text reporter. We don't have a good word term for, like, people who just write things anymore. Um, but you're also a podcast host. You also have a production company. And so you're an entertainment journalist. And so there's a term that I'm sure you're very familiar with, but some of our listeners may not be of multi-hyphenate. Basically people like a a Kevin Hart or, I mean, I feel like so many actors and actresses at this point are kind of multi-hyphenates, but who do acting, producing, directing, maybe they're even in music too. And it feels like we're in this era where we're seeing multi-hyphenate journalists of you know journalists who aren't just doing word-based reporting, but are doing podcasts, are moving into video or TV, and you feel like very much that type of person. Um, and so I'm curious, like what at what point in your career did you start thinking, okay, 
I like working with words. I like writing. But what else can I be doing with this? Yeah, I think a lot of this became an accident. You know, like I wasn't necessarily seeking out to do anything other than what I was doing, which at the time was a newspaper reporter. So I started my career out in Detroit at the Detroit Free Press. And I was always an arts reporter, always covering entertainment. And even though I truly, truly hate dating myself, I arrived at the Free Press at the time where this uh, crazy blonde haired white guy named Marshall Mathers was just about to get a record deal with Dr. Dre. And at the time, you know, Detroit did not have a national music scene. Like while, you know, Detroit was making headways in tech music space, that's very much an underground area. Like it wasn't, you know, commercial in the way that we had produced music before, you know, with regards to Motown. And so I came in and I really wanted to cover that scene and I wanted to be a part of that. And so that's what I started doing, covering Motown as it existed in Detroit, but also covering the emergence of this hip hop scene, which became, you know, a local hip hop scene, which became a national hip hop scene. And there was a time, and I think the year was 2006. Does that make sense? I think so. 2007, 2007, the top of 2007, when one of my executive editors at the time came to me and said, hey, you know what? This is the 40th anniversary coming up later this year in June of Aretha Franklin uh, recording Respect. Like that would be really cool to do a piece on that because obviously Aretha lived in Detroit. And, and it's interesting because now that she's died and certainly once she died, I think a lot of people outside of Detroit, it was it was fun to see her grab the covers of magazines and newspapers internationally. But Detroit, she was very much just a normal person and not necessarily looked at as the superstar status that she actually really was. Because Aretha did her own grocery shopping. You would see Aretha at the dry cleaners, at the credit union, at Jenny Craig. I mean, Aretha Franklin was just <laughs> out in these Detroit streets. And so, um, and so I said, okay, you know, I, I want to do something, but I don't want to just write a story on this. And that was at the time where newspapers were trying to figure out how to be relevant, I think, in this digital space. Newspapers had just really figured out how to put the work that we do in print online. And this was before the BuzzFeedization, I think, of, of news. So we weren't having stories that were going viral necessarily. So that really wasn't the, the focus. But a photographer friend had just come back from like a workshop where she was learning how to use cameras. And she came to me and said, because she was thinking entertainment would be a really great space to kind of test out some of those things that she learned. Because she's like, you know, if you ever have any idea that you want to do, like, let's talk about it and figure it out. And I was like, actually, I do have an idea. Um, I want to do this piece on Aretha Franklin, but I don't want to just do a written story. I want to do something else. Let's um, make a documentary. I mean, we didn't know what we were doing. It was it was just such a naive idea at the time, but um, we made a documentary about Aretha Franklin's cover of Respect, and we pegged it to when it actually hit number one, which was um, in June in the summer of 1967. And if you know anything about the history of America, most certainly the history of Detroit, then you probably are thinking that 67, the summer of 67, is when all the race riots were happening. 
and Detroit was forever changed by um, by the riots that happened in Detroit as a result of some young men uh, being killed. And that song really became not only a sororal kind of call for women about women demanding respect from their partnerships and also in a workplace uh, profession, uh, but it also was about Black people just wanting respect. And it kind of became this unofficial anthem of sorts for the civil rights movement at that time. And so I wanted to talk about all of those things in this documentary. And we did, but Aretha Franklin was also very upset with the local newspaper because years earlier, they did a very big piece with a very unflattering photo on the front page of the newspaper called Why Won't Aretha Pay Her Bills? So she refused to talk to me for that documentary, but she ended up loving it and asked for a copy of it. And turns out that she was the only one that loved it. I ended up winning two Emmys, including one national Emmy. Um, and we were the first newspaper and I was the first newspaper journalist to actually do that. And while that was truly an accident in me just trying to figure out how to do something that I've always done, but in a different medium, that really changed the course of my career. And that was 2007. Right. And I mean, at that time, because I mean, now I feel like every media company, every news publisher, not every, most are trying to figure out video, trying to figure out especially like TV and streaming and how can we get into documentaries or adapt articles into shows or movies. 2007, though, like that's way before any of this was happening. So, but you had the success where did you think of, okay, what do I want to do now? What do I want to do next? To what extent do I want to build up? Do I just move to Hollywood, start <laughs> doing pitch meetings all the time and journalism? Thank you. Goodbye. So I didn't have that foresight back then. I knew that I wanted a different challenge, but I didn't know all the things that I think we know now and things that we're aware now. This is also 2007 means that this is before social media. This is before Facebook was available to adults, <laughs> you know, and it was certainly before Twitter and and any of the other things that we that we utilize now that that contributes to creating media stars, you know, right now. So at the time, I just wanted a different challenge. And I, I moved to Chicago to work for the Tribune because what was happening was a lot of newspapers saw that and they were paying attention to it. And they were like, how can how can we get someone to do that here? So I did, you know, some seminars, some talks with different newsrooms. And then I took a different job in Chicago. And the thought was I was covering a lot of that local hip hop scene still. And I wanted to venture more into the film space. And Chicago was great, but as I always say, I, I arrived in Chicago right before, and this pains me to say this because I started out as a newspaper journalist and I love newspapers to this day, but it's right before the bottom fell out of, of newspapers, meaning, you know, newspapers were on Wall Street right now and Wall Street had different uh, margins that it wanted newspapers to succeed with. And when newspapers weren't hitting that 20% unrealistic margin that Wall Street wanted, that meant that people started laying off workers. And that was the first journalist. And that was the first time in my career, and I was very young in my career too at that, that I had experienced, you know, journalists that I worked side by side with losing their jobs. And I was seeing that happen at newspapers around the country. And then ultimately that happened in Chicago. And that was that was a scary day to see people that I started with at the Chicago Tribune get laid off and lose their jobs. And because we had some indication that 
layoffs would be coming to Chicago. Ironically, I was trying to figure out what my plan would be if I if I got laid off. And I was like, what do I want to do? And what I was seeing my colleagues were doing is they would get laid off and then they would go into like PR or they would go and work in academia. And I, I didn't think that I wanted to do either one of those things. What I wanted to do was be an entertainment journalist. And I didn't move to Chicago because I always wanted to work in Chicago. Chicago is a cool city, but that wasn't like a final resting place for me. And, and, and I say that because I had friends that left Detroit and moved to Chicago because they wanted to live in Chicago. They thought it was a little bit of a hipper city. And this obviously is before a lot of the gentrification that's happening in Detroit right now. And so they wanted that experience. That really wasn't what was in it for me. I wanted to just be an entertainment journalist. And so I thought in order to do that without a job, I need to be in New York or LA and really LA because that's where the industry exists. And so I started trying to formulate a plan and I will never forget this. I had just screened that second Batman movie that Heath Ledger ultimately won his his Oscar for posthumously. And I was leaving that IMAX theater. And when I walked back into the newsroom, I received a phone call from USA Today, a recruiter there. And he said, hey, we want to talk to you about this job that we have open covering, you know, entertainment, wanted to see if that's something we can have a conversation with you about. And I was like nodding my head as if he could see me. And I was like, yes, I, I yes, let's have that conversation. And he goes, oh, also it's based in Los Angeles. Is that a problem? No, it is not a problem. Um, I would love to have that conversation. And so we did. And when I was in in Virginia interviewing for that job, this was probably like on a Thursday, maybe, when I had my, my phone was off, obviously. So I didn't turn it back on until I got to the airport that night. And when I turned it back on, I had a bunch of messages from friends in Chicago at the Tribune who were like, oh my God, we're hearing that the layoff is going down tomorrow. It was like, oh my God. And there were so many rumors about how it's going to happen. So I go back to work uh, that next day and literally so many people um, that I was friends with got laid off that day. And that was pretty scary. But then I got my job offer the next week. And so then I left because you know, the lesson that I took from that moment was you really shouldn't be loyal necessarily to anyone but yourself and the integrity of your career. And so I took I took that job at USA Today, um, came out to Los Angeles, and my eyes were just wide open to actually what covering Hollywood was. Before I was covering Hollywood from a newsroom, I was watching, you know, the Oscar watch parties and the Grammy watch parties were so much fun in Detroit. Um, you know, even going to see screenings in Chicago while Roger Ebert is sitting next to me was so cool. But it went from that. And then even when the entertainers would come into town in Chicago or in Detroit, like being able to have lunch with like Kerry Washington, who was far from being, you know, the, the Kerry Washington that she is right now. Um, was a really cool moment. But then leaving that and then coming into LA and working for USA Today and covering entertainment, going on set visits, um, you know, drinking with the cast of The Office at the Golden Globes, like these were experiences that I was just not prepared to, to have happen to me. And it really just kind of opened my eyes to what covering Hollywood really was. And um, that also was the first job that, I started getting a lot of requests to do television work, to come on and be a talking head. You know, I started doing like E! True Hollywood stories, like Charlie Sheen or the Kardashians, you know, um, Chris Farley, you know, things like that. And um, and then doing, you know, CNN. So when I was in 
at USA Today, I was at USA Today when Michael Jackson died, you know, and I was like a lead reporter on covering that and breaking that news. Our offices at the time were in Westwood, which is right across, which is where UCLA is, but it also happens to be right across the street from the hospital where he ultimately was brought in. And I remember that year, there were so many rumors that he was so close to death. And so what happened is I would routinely call his lawyer whenever one of those rumors popped up and I would say, hey, it's Kelly calling from USA Today. This is a rumor. Just want to get a statement from you. And he's like, it's a rumor. And I'm like, okay, cool. So when that rumor matriculated that day, I called the lawyer, said the same thing. And he said, let me call you back. And I was like, oh my God. In my mind, I'm like, oh my God, it's true. And because I knew that he'd lived, um, I think in Brentwood at the time, I figured if they took him to a hospital, it would probably be the one that was across the street from my office. And so when I got there, I was like the first reporter to arrive there. And then eventually... There were other reporters that came in mass and then that ambulance came and I saw Jermaine Jackson and I and at that point I was on Twitter, but that was probably like the first year of Twitter. And I remember sitting out a tweet saying something like Jermaine Jackson just arrived at the hospital. And I and then I remember I had a cousin who was like, Oh my God, my cousin is there. She is breaking this news. And then it kind of, you know, became a thing. And and I think moments like that really had me thinking differently about journalism. And I think immediately, especially because I felt like I had so many eyeballs that were paying attention to that tweet or any tweets that I was sending from being on the ground there, it made me think about the responsibility of being a journalist in a different way than I thought about before. Because, you know, as a newspaper journalist, you have to wait until the next day for the paper to come out. It's not happening in real time in the moment. And I was literally on that ground getting phone calls from, you know, news outlets, TV outlets asking to get me on the phone to provide any kind of context. And it was overwhelming, but also, dare I say, it gave me a bit of an adrenaline rush. And I liked being the person responsible for telling big impactful stories like that in in the in the arts and entertainment space. And um of course, as these things go, I was laid off after a year at USA Today after running away from the Chicago Tribune uh because I didn't want to be laid off. I was laid off literally after a year at USA Today and I didn't even have a time to think about what I wanted to do next. Thankfully, because at that point, the news of the Emmy win and had been written about and it was out there. And honestly, the conversation as it was relayed to me from different editors or even producers at other outlets, they were like, why would why would they lay off a woman who like has this kind of a vision, you know, who can do this kind of a thing. And and honestly, I think it was just a numbers game. They were probably laying out people who had um the least amount of seniority because you have to think about, you know, severance pay and and all of those things. But um but because those stories were out and because someone um Richard Prince who covers journalism and 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 journalists wrote about, you know, the woman who won the Emmy, the newspaper reporter who won the Emmy uh, was laid off. So I started getting phone calls immediately. And the first phone call I got was from a network and it was ESPN. And they, you know, had this site, ESPN.com, but they had a site page too, specifically at the time that focused on things off the court, off the field, like entertainment, doing, um, doings, but- Page two. But, oh, right. 
you page two, page two. And what was so great about page two and my page two freelance experience is they didn't want me to just write. They wanted me to do video too at times. And I did. In some cases, I traveled the world doing pieces for them. Like I went to Tequila, Mexico with Oscar de la Hoya. Um, I went to Scotland with Jeremy Shockey, you know, and I was I was finding stories at an intersection of sports and entertainment. And I wasn't always writing. I was doing video, which I had not professionally prepared to do. So I was really learning on the job. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor and we'll be right back. So I mean, there's so much there to get into. <laughs> what, one aspect of it, though, with especially when I think it was when you f- were first coming to the Tribune um, and you were doing like you had the the TV interviews that you were doing. Um, and then I think you can you said you continued that at USA Today and we're doing you know things like um, E! True Hollywood Story and things like that. Did you have any training for doing like I know some people it's it's almost like just put a, f- a camera in front of them they're going to be fine but then other people YouTube stars actors actresses like have to work at kind of developing that capability I think for journalists a lot of us kind of think of I can deal with words on a page or on a screen but if I have to say stuff out loud you got to give me some time to think about it Exactly no my first TV hit ever was Greta's show on Fox News Channel. And I was still in Detroit at that time. And the the circumstances, and it's so funny, kind of all the things that we've learned, I think, you know, ab- about that network in particular, is that um, Eminem's best friend, Proof, was killed, ironically, on 8 Mile Road. And that was, you know, that was one of my beats there, you know, covering that scene. And I'm not the type of reporter that would willingly give up covering that story, even though that was a homicide story at this point, it wasn't an art story, but I felt like I needed to make sure that I was there every step of the way because I wanted to make sure that the right context was always being reported about and written about. So that was a story that I ultimately followed through. I was in the courtrooms, you know, I was covering the funeral, that kind of thing. But, um, but the, the, the day that he died, they're obviously putting stories up on the web that I'm authoring, that I'm writing And her producer called and did like, you know, asked if I would do this and then did a pre-interview. And because I'm so in, at that point, entrenched in the world of hip hop, they were like, oh my God, please say it just like that on Fox News tonight. Like, please, please use like the word remix or please, you know, like whatever, whatever hip hop lingo I was saying in like a casual sense, they were like, please God use that. And I was like, okay, again, I had never been on television before that day ever. And so my first hit was a national news channel and it was Fox News talking about the murder of a beloved rapper um, on 8 Mile Road. And that also was one of those kind of life-changing moments where, you know, my family, they really had an understanding of the profession that I had chosen to do. Um, I think because people don't really know journalists in a casual sense, it's such a foreign experience for them to know someone who wants to be a journalist, especially in my family. Everyone wanted to be 
doctor, lawyer, teacher, you know, accountant, these very practically based professions. But I was like, I want to be a writer and I think I want to be a journalist. And they're like, what? Are you going to make money? Are you going to live at home? <laughs> right. Like, what? Like, what is this? You know, and so having that hit on Fox News where everyone around the country and my family at least could watch, they were like, oh, okay. So she's she's one of the people that we watch on TV. She's one of the people that we read in, in a newspaper. Like we have a full understanding or a better understanding of what it is that she does and the approach that she takes. So I, I was able to be explained to, to my family, um, but also I had a taste of something that I wanted more of, you know, and it was less about being on TV for me. And it was more about, honestly, I guess that responsibility, like I didn't want someone else to go on and represent that community and tell that story the same way I didn't want another reporter to come in and report something when I felt like I had a context that needed to be, you know, added to that piece. And it's the same way, I, I guess, when I think about it, you know, when I was on the ground trying to figure out what to say on this new social media bird app about <laughs> Michael Jackson, you know, like <laughs> the biggest entertainer in the world. Like, what, like, what do I say? And that happened again, P.S., years later when Whitney Houston died. I was one of the last reporters to see her alive. And one of the last tweets, and I remember I was at the Beverly Hills Hilton. I was actually there to interview Clive Davis, Brandy and Monica. And at the time I was freelancing. So I was working for MTV News and I went in there with my producer and a camera. And as we're about to walk inside, a publicist says, oh, heads up, Whitney and Bobby Christina are going to go in there. They're going to crash your interview a little bit and say like, hi, don't say hi to Clive and Brandy and Monica. I was like, oh, okay, that's sure Whitney Houston <laughs> yeah, come through. Absolutely. Because I had just spent time with her on set a couple of months earlier in Detroit when she was um, filming the Sparkle remake. And, you know, Detroit's my hometown and I was freelancing for a magazine at that time. And I wanted to go back and tell that story, but also spend time at home, but also interview Whitney Houston. And so when I saw her, I mean, it, it's hard to say now, but it's true. And, and I think everyone has, has since said it. I know certainly the other two reporters who were with me at the time have said it. Like she did not appear to be as well as she wanted to be when I had interviewed her a few months earlier in an interview that was unpublished at that point. And, um, and but I, I never, I would never say anything disparaging about someone famous on Twitter. Like I just, and I, I was so happy that I had the smarts back then to not just because people people go and research your your tweets what you say on social media before an interview so I would never want someone to come in and say so you hated what I wore at the Grammys that year and you trashed like that would be embarrassing to me so I would never do something mean so but I wanted to acknowledge that you know Whitney Houston crashed my interview with Clyde Brandy and Monica and so I had sent out a tweet that said something like you know just saw Whitney Houston and I was like God how do I end this sentence. And I ended it by saying, she looks great. I didn't I didn't want to say what I really was thinking at the time. So I said, she looks great. So 12 hours later, when she was dead, that tweet came back and haunted me. And people were, because at this point, you could retweet things. And people were retweeting that, like, what happened in 12 hours? You, you said she looked great. And now she's, you know, in a, found in a bathtub, probably from an overdose. And I was like, oh, my God, I have to be even more careful than I've already been because this social media thing is even 
bigger than what I thought. And I thought after the death of Michael Jackson, that that was like the the biggest thing that I would, you know, be in the same sentence with social media for. And then a few years later, you know, that experience changed me. Um, so, I mean, it's just been like an interesting evolution, I think, you know, just trying to figure out like how to do more than just tell a story in print form, the way that I was taught to do when I was at Michigan State University and worked for my college newspaper. I had to think about how to take what I wrote and be an expert on television or on radio. I had to think about what I said on social media because I realized that people were paying attention just like people read your articles in a newspaper or magazine. They read your tweets. And because you are a journalist and people feel like they should be able to trust what you say. You have to be very careful about what you put out there in, in the, in the Twitter verse in the social media verse, you know? Um, so that was the, the, the higher education that I really needed to get and to figure out how to really be, I, I guess, not a multi-hyphenate at that time, but how to be a journalist full stop, not a print journalist and not a broadcast journalist, not a radio journalist, not a TV journalist, but just a journalist who can do all of those things. Right. Like hub and spoke type model, which is now I'm just using jargon. But so we've talked about you started out as a written journalist, then started doing TV and then podcasting. I mean, we're talking in 2022, the cliche is everyone has a podcast at this point, but, and you just, you know, debuted a new podcast this month, Close Up, in which you're, you know, it's about the Oscars leading up to the Academy Awards in late March, and you're interviewing um, a lot of, you know, celebrities, directors, um, others, you know, for that. But this isn't your first podcast. You also have another act with The Undefeated. So at what point did you start looking at podcasts? And, and was that something that you were thinking about? oh, cool, that's another tool I can put in my tool belt? And was there also an aspect of, all right, I've seen what's happened with print media and you know media, the media business in general. It'd be good for me to be a bit diversified by having like podcasts that I can do too. Oh, absolutely. One of the earliest lessons I got was on the first day of my job at the Detroit Free Press. Um, there was this outgoing theater critic named Larry Devine, and he was he was retiring. And he told me that the promise he made to himself when he was first starting out like three, four decades earlier is that he would stop doing this job when it stopped being fun. And he also said it, it wasn't that it stopped being fun. It was just that his outlook on life changed because he started seeing people die while they were still working and he wanted to actually enjoy his life. He wanted to retire and be able to move to North Carolina and enjoy his life after working. And that was the only reason that he stopped. And I was like, okay, I'm like 21 years old, newly minted, you know, um, college graduate. And so I said, that sounds like a pretty cool thing that I want to carry with me every day. And I started thinking a couple of years ago about what I wanted to do other than just write. And I love writing. I love being able to tell a story that way. But I also started seeing friends of mine who were working in, um, they were sports journalists. And they, we all started out at newspapers at the same time. But they were finding ways to do the same work that we were doing, but doing it on TV, 
doing it in podcast form and making a lot more money than I was making, you know, at my, at my newspaper job. And, you know, like I started with people like Michael Smith and Jamel Hill is my best friend. We were college roommates. And, um, so I was, I was very privy <laughs> to what, to what their financial realities were and what their lives were like and how they were able to really translate the skills that we all did as newspaper journalists into this kind of multimedia world. Um, but what I was disappointed in is that I wasn't seeing those same opportunities for entertainment journalists. There wasn't, there wasn't an ESPN for, for entertainment, you know, MTV could have been that, but it wasn't, you know, that was the place where you went to watch music videos. Now it's something else altogether. You go there to watch <laughs> Teen Moms, you know, or whatever. But at the time, you know, while they did have, you know, reporters like Chris Conley and um, Allison Stewart, I think, you know, that that just wasn't, that didn't feel like a place where I could have fit in. And, and honestly, by the time I became a reporter, they weren't doing that type of work anymore. They had all moved on to other places. Um, and MTV wasn't, you know, they weren't the bastion of entertainment reporting. That's just not what they were doing. So I figured out that I had to kind of create my own space if I wanted to have a better livelihood. And if I wanted to do something that didn't bore me. And it wasn't that writing bored me, but I think the confines of working at newspapers did. And so, you know, I saw I saw what was happening with BuzzFeed, that they were having news that was going viral, which to me communicated that people were excited about news, that people would never stop being excited about news. It was just in the packaging. And so I wanted to go work for BuzzFeed because I wanted to get under the hood of the car a little bit and see what these young guys knew and what they were doing that engaged people in in news. What what were they doing that was making people share things like thousands of times on Facebook, which I learned when I got there, that's how stories go viral, the, the Facebook shares. I wanted to kind of learn those things. And so I did, and and I'm glad that I did, but um, and, and not that I was ever planning on being a short tenure, I wasn't. But I was fortunate that that ESPN called me and said, hey, we really are trying to launch The Undefeated. Um, Jason Woodlock had left at that point and they were about to bring in someone new. It ended up being Kevin Merida, um, who I had known for years at that point. And Kevin actually was the person who told me to leave Chicago and take the job at USA Today now that I think about it. Um, so he'd been like a trusted you know, person in my life career wise anyway. And they said, this is an opportunity for you to come in and create, you know, and just create your own dream job. And I don't know that we often get, you know, th those types of phone calls. And so I said, yes, I want to come and create it. You know, and they wanted to do journalism with no boundaries, um, which I've, I've never heard someone say before. You know, they said they wanted to be content agnostic. So they said, we're hiring you as talent. You're going to get a talent contract and that talent could be hosting a radio show, being on television. It could be writing. It could be a podcast. It could be something that you haven't experienced before because there are many different ways to put content out there for consumers. And I was like, content agnostic. All right. You know, sign me up. That sounds really cool. Um, so I did. And I went in thinking that I wanted to do a podcast because at this point, Mike and Jamel had this really cool podcast 
his and hers, that ultimately translated to their TV series that was very popular. But why I think it was very popular was because they were able to do things their way. You know, they they had producers who didn't quite, they, they weren't able to kind of lay the pathway for what it was that they did. Like they knew this was gonna be something like for the culture, as we say, and, um, and they were very vocal. Um, and how the design of that podcast was going to go. And it obviously worked out very well for them because they ended up getting that show, which ended up getting, you know, on Sports Center. And so um, I wanted to do something similar, but in entertainment, but at ESPN, you know, and I didn't know how that was going to work, but I knew I wanted a podcast. And I think one of the, we, I don't think that we really knew how to do the podcast that I would have wanted to do under an ESPN umbrella, um, which is the only reason why we didn't launch a podcast that was, you know, that lived at ESPN. I think at the time they were trying to restructure a little bit and wanted to really drill down on 24-7 sports. And other than Michigan State football and basketball, I'm not going to be able to tell you much. I'm not going to be able to analyze anything. I know Matthew Stafford, you know, is a quarterback for the LA Rams only because he was a quarterback for the Detroit Lions, but I can't like give you personalities, you know, in, in football for the most part, like I'm just not that person. And I would never want to set back any of the strides that female sports supporters have made, you know, so there just wasn't an opportunity for me to, to really do that there. But what happened is a couple of years ago, Instead of making sure that I connected on the intersection of sports, culture, and race with every entertainment story that I told at The Undefeated, they said, you know what? Just go full throttle entertainment. Like, continue doing the the intersection stuff, but just do what you do, but for us. Because we're starting to become bigger than than what we had limited ourselves. We're, We're not thinking of ourselves as an ESPN microsite. We're thinking of ourselves as a microsite for Disney, you know, like a a space where we can create whatever the content looks like. And I was like, okay, well, one thing I want to do is I want to host some kind of an entertainment segment. And I had tried to do that before with SportsCenter. We had, I had a very brief run where I was doing on-camera interviews for a sports audience, but with entertainers. I had Denzel Washington, sit down with me. I had Samuel Jackson sit down with me. I had Michael B. Jordan sit down with me. I even had a gospel musician who was very popular, you know, every year during the Super Bowl. There's a big, you know, there's a NFL gospel choir. And this, you know, this woman uh, of, of this big gospel duo, Mary Mary, is always in the mix, you know, for that. And so I was getting people on SportsCenter that probably normally wouldn't get on SportsCenter. Um, but again, <laughs> it's it's ESPN. You know, at the end of the day, while it is cool to hear Denzel talk about how he had to rush and call his accountant the day that LeBron James signed to play for the Lakers to make sure that he had not given up those <laughs> those plucky, you know, those plush, you know, courtside seats that he's had, even when the Lakers are horrible. Um 
I don't know if that content was, if they had figured out how to best showcase it necessarily. It worked out when they needed it. Like I had somehow gotten Kobe Bryant to agree to sit down and talk with me for what became a Sports Center special when he was nominated for his Oscar. And it was interesting because I don't think that he was necessarily, see, Kobe did not want to come on ESPN and talk about who was the greatest of all time, Michael Jordan or LeBron James. He didn't want to have conversations like that. But, you know, Kobe was very much a a nerd of whatever it is that he wanted to put his hands in. And so, like, you know, once he decided he wanted to be a producer and go into Hollywood, he started the day he started following me on Twitter. I was like, oh, my God, I think he is going to say yes to this interview. And I knew he started reading my stuff and looking at the content I was doing. So he was like, yes, let's let's do this interview. And then ESPN is like, wait, you got hold up, hold up. Kobe Bryant's going to sit down with you. So all of a sudden, like, you know, coordinating producers were coming with me to Orange County on set, you know, with Kobe Bryant. It was a really big deal. Um, But there wasn't like a way for me to kind of do that consistently at ESPN. So The Undefeated made it where I could launch like a digital series and talk about entertainment, which is what another act became. And of course, the pandemic, I think, really helped out with that. It's so horrible to say it like that. But I think that it did because... Sports stopped. Everything shut down. But the thing that kept going was entertainment. And I was explaining to them, I'm like, entertainment works far in advance. I saw things two years ago that haven't even come out yet. All of this content is about to be released direct to consumers. They're going to, you know, Netflix is going to become a thing. And then all of a sudden you see everyone else buying up films and TV series and distributing them. And so obviously people wanted to talk about those projects. And so another act was born. And we started getting really big names and it was great, but I also wanted a space to, because I really wanted a podcast. I just, I've always been interested in radio and podcasting just seemed like such a really cool space to enter, even though everyone does have a podcast. I just, I just wanted a place to do deeper dive conversations with who I think are really dynamic, you know, creators in the entertainment space. So finally, finally, I have that podcast. Right. Two podcasts now. I know. It's crazy. I'm crazy because, yeah. <laughs> you do a lot. Because, I mean, and then another thing we haven't gotten to yet, but I think it's kind of like that next step in your evolution as a multi hyphenate journalist. You have a production company that you run with Jamel Hill, and you, in what was it, 2020, signed a development deal with Showtime to create a comedy series. So, not even documentary, not something based on something you had written, but something all together different how at what point did you think okay now now i gotta get into hollywood like traditional hollywood get into entertainment too yeah um a couple of things i mean i think when you cover this town long enough you start thinking like hmm i feel like i have something to contribute like maybe there's something i can say but to be honest with you um jamel and i decided to develop this production company long before anything that she experienced, you know, in her career with, with like the Trump tweet and all of that stuff. Um, I wrote this oral history of the making of one of my favorite albums by New Edition, Any Heartbreak. And I'd never done an oral history before. And I just love that group. I love that album. And there was a mini series that was coming out about the group. Everyone agreed to do it, including like Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis and, you know, choreographers and producers. Just a lot of people had a lot to say. And um, it came out really well. And when she read it, she loved it so much and was like, 
I think we should work together and do things like this. Like we could take what you did with this oral history, but it could live like in a, in a television form. So we were actually talking about non-scripted like documentaries is what we were initially thinking. And I was like, yes, that's exactly what I want to do. I want to do what I did with Aretha Franklin's cover of Respect, that short documentary that I did in, you know, broadband for my newspaper all those years ago. I want to do that, but I want that to be like a two hour thing, an hour long thing. Like that sounds like a great idea. And so we really kind of got to work on formulating ideas that we could do and what that might look like and where, where something like that might live. And uh, I have a friendship with an actress named Gabrielle Union, and I was on vacation with her. And this is the most Hollywood thing I feel like I've ever said, but we were in, I was on vacation with Gabrielle Union, and we're in the Dominican Republic. And we, she had like chartered this boat for us, like this catamaran that we had all gone out on that day. And so we're literally in this like water. And I will never forget this because she was saying that she had just started, she was starting a production company because she really wanted to tell her own stories. And she had just hired her former publicist, Holly uh, Fleischer, who was wanted to move into that space and, and develop pieces. And I'm like, yeah, I'm like, yeah, you know, Jamel and I have this production company. And I'm like, you know, we we have this idea that we should like run by you at some point. She's like, yeah, that'd be great. Um, And it was just the most casual of conversations. And so when I got back to the States, I I told Jamel, I was like, yeah, like I I didn't tell her what it was. but, But what happened is when Jamel and I were brainstorming at some point, the documentaries that we wanted to tell her, the non scripted projects that we wanted to do. We were like, we should really tell our story in some way. Like we should like develop like a fun comedy that's kind of about us. You know, we both at that point um, found success, financial success and something that we love doing. And we were both finding that we were, while Jamel's career is just enormous and, you know, uh, it has like a million plus followers on Twitter. Um, I don't have that many. <laughs> I don't even have anything close to that many. But um, but I also was finding success in my space of entertainment reporting, the same way that she was finding success in her space of of sports. And so, you know, we and we both supported each other. We both. Um, I think someone told us uh, that it's rare to find friends who've been friends that long and have known each other since they were teenagers to have both been able to grow up together in a profession and be successful individual individually, but then also come together. And we were like, yeah, that is kind of cool, you know, and kind of, and kind of rare. So that'd be kind of fun to tell these very like exaggerated dramatic versions of things that we have experienced, you know, even the idea of of going, you know, on a vacation like that with someone as well known um, as 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 Gab is, you know, um, that's a unique experience, and Jay has had very unique experiences too. And so, I circle back around. I sent I sent Gab an email and just kind of gave her an outline of what it was we wanted to do because at that point, Jay and I had already written out like character names and backgrounds and storylines and what we thought like 10 episodes would look like. I mean, we had really done all of this work before that, before that vacation. 
And so I finally had the courage to pull the trigger and send it to her. And I don't even know if she took two hours. I mean, she got back so immediately and was just like, oh my God, this is literally my life. <laughs> She's like, I relate to, to these women so much. I relate to the story that you guys want to tell. Let's get together and talk about this because she had just signed um, a deal with Sony for television. And so we, we you know, met up with Gab and Holly and got excited. And then we met up with Sony and they loved it immediately. I mean, we got a deal, um, uh, a first come deal, like immediately from Sony, like maybe the next day they said, yes, like we want to do something with this. And then we developed it out. We brought in a, a writer who has been writing for TV and producing for TV. And then we started doing pitch meetings and this is before the world shut down. Um, and I think we technically, you know, had settled with, with Showtime, but it just took forever, like legally all the paperwork and all that stuff. So we didn't announce it until, until months and months later. That was the hardest secret to sit on, but it also was really scary, but satisfying when it was out there. Um, because a, you're talking about a fabricated portion of, of my life that, you know, we're going to use as in her life that we're going to use as inspiration for the series. But also, you know, we weren't known as, you know, content producers like that. You know, we are narrative storytellers. You know, we're not, we don't do anything in the fictional space or we hadn't done anything in the fictional space or we weren't known for doing anything in that space. But what we knew was that we wanted to see ourselves reflected in television. And that's that's where we are. And we have other projects that we want to do that we're working on and hopefully those things will happen too while we also are being journalists and hosting podcasts and right. and being and trying to be like these this voice of you know expert wisdom on on various television shows too it's a lot but i i like personally being busy like this that right. keeps me alive you know keeps me feeling alive yeah and so i mean at this point because you seem to be something of an oracle for like, okay, where's, uh, what's the next thing for journalists to be looking at? Are you already looking at like, oh, what can I do in the metaverse? Or at this point, are you just like, look, I'm working on a TV show. I have two podcasts. I am also doing my reporting for The Undefeated. Uh -huh. <laughs> Let me just focus <laughs> on these things right now. I mean, no, I'm thinking about 20 other things that I want to do too. Like, you know, like it's just, um, and I mean, I, I, I have moments where I tell myself I need to edit, you know, and, and kind of bring things in a little bit, but I also don't want to do that because I don't want to miss out on opportunities. Like, I feel like I'm just now really starting to experience something in journalism that I haven't experienced before. You know, when I talked about seeing people like Mike and Jamel and Bomani Jones, who also is a good friend of mine and even friends like LZ Granderson, I've known him since I was very young, seeing them all do so well and translate what they did as writers into a television space was so inspiring for me. But it was happening at a time where I was like, I knew my mailman by his first name because I was waiting for like checks to arrive. You know, when I was a <laughs> freelancer, I'd be like, as soon as this check comes, I can pay my rent and I can eat, you know, like, so I, I was, I was struggling at one point, you know, um, when I was freelancing while my friends were doing very well. And now I'm in a space where I'm getting opportunities to do projects 
and things that I would have killed to have done when I knew, you know, my mailman's name in Atlanta. Um, now, when I don't necessarily need all of those opportunities, but I also feel like I want to take advantage, you know, and I want to say yes to everything that's coming my way because I've been, this is what I asked for, you know? So I don't want to be the person who made a really bold wish and then it comes true. And then I'm like, eh, never mind, right. you know? Because then when will they keep coming in at that point? Exactly. Exactly. I want those phone calls to keep coming in, you know? Um, so it's, it's really hard to say no, but what I am learning is how to, how to say yes, but, which I think is important, you know, like, um, the network ABC reached out, they've been doing a lot of specials, you know, lately, obviously like on Hulu too, with the housewives or, you know, uh, specials for ABC primetime that I, that I do all the time. And so someone reached out to me the week of, you know, like Oscar nominations and which is usually one of the craziest weeks of the year for me. Like I think the day of, um, of the Oscar nominees, I had a call time of one thirty in the morning and then it just went, you know? So, and, and so I, I was like, yes, I want to do this next special that you guys are doing. They're like, okay, great. So we're gonna, you know, shoot it on, we want to shoot it on this day in LA. And I was like, okay, yes, but this is a really busy time for me right now. And I also then have like the Super Bowl coming up, you know, right after that. Um, so that's also going to be really busy. And they were like, oh my God, totally understand. Let's do it on this next week. And that was so gratifying to hear that because I think the fear that I always had with saying no or even saying yes, but is that they would say, okay, we'll move on to somebody else next time. And I didn't want to put myself in a position where I was saying no to an opportunity that could lead me to my next opportunity. Like, I want to say yes to everything. I want to take advantage of everything because I feel like now is the time for me. I've waited for this moment for so long. And now that I have it, I want to just keep moving forward. You seem to be doing absolutely that. And we appreciate you making some time because, I mean, this is your busy week. We had the Oscar nominations yesterday. The Super Bowl is this Sunday. So, Kelly, thanks so much for taking time to come on the podcast. It was really great talking with you. Thanks for having me. It was great talking to you, too. I hope I didn't burn your ears by saying too much and talking too long. (laughs) Not at all. No, this is great. And thank you for listening to the Digiday Podcast. Please don't forget to share this episode with someone who you think would enjoy it. You can even rate us on Apple Podcasts if you like. We'll be back next week with another episode.